the Iliad, Hamlet, the Count of Monte Cristo, Moby Dick, the Godfather, the Lion King. What do these stories have in common? They're all about revenge. And there's a reason that these works are so enjoyed and celebrated because seething, vengeful rage is a universal experience. It's something that we've all felt at different times, provoked by different stimuli. And so we can all understand the desire for revenge portrayed in these works. These works are also celebrated because anger is something that we like and celebrate in Western culture. And if you have questions about that, I just invite you to consider politics in this country. A 2020 survey showed that nearly one in five Americans said they wished people in the other political party would, quote, just die. Maybe you could relate to that. Or maybe you say, well, I don't wish death on other people, but how do you talk about people who disagree with you or who have wronged you? Do you insult them? Do you talk about how stupid or evil they are? Maybe you talk like that not about politics or even about people who have wronged you, but about an annoying coworker or a fellow believer that you don't much like from church. Maybe you talk like that about a parent or a child or a spouse. Anger is everywhere, isn't it? It's even in our cars. Anger is also in us. And today, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about anger in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And as we begin, let me remind you of where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Last time we said that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus declares that he is the culmination and the conclusion of the Hebrew Scriptures and of the Old Covenant, the covenant made by God through Moses with Israel conditioned on the law. And Jesus says, all of that points to me. And now that, I'm come, now that I've come, it stands fulfilled. Its binding legal force has been concluded. Now, that does not mean that Jesus has repudiated the law or the Old Testament. He hasn't. He has not struck them from the Scriptures. No, the law and the Old Testament stand as a perpetual testimony about God's faithful dealings with Israel, about God's faithfulness to bring the Messiah He swore He would bring. But the Old Covenant and the Old Law are no longer binding upon people. Paul said in Ephesians 2.15 plainly, that by Christ's death He has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jesus has ended the Old Covenant. And Jesus has inaugurated the New Covenant by His death. And so Jesus is the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Old Era and the New Era. And as the end of the Old and the beginning of the New, Jesus, our Lord, who stands in between, has the right to decide to what extent the ethical demands of the Old should continue into the New. Friends, we need to know today that there are still ethical demands upon the people of God in the church age. Sometimes people think that's not the case. Oh, the law is finished, so I can live however I want. No. The New Testament is extremely clear about this. God's people, believers, are still to be people of obedience. Read Romans 6 or James 1 if you have questions. But today we obey not the commands of the Old Testament law, but commands which issue on the personal authority of the Lord Jesus, which come from Jesus directly or through his apostles. And what's really interesting is that a lot of these New Testament commands have connections to the Old Testament law. And that's what we're going to see really over the next two chapters and especially in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. In the next few sermons, we're going to see that Jesus is going to speak about a number of commands from the Old Testament commands that his audience would be familiar with. And as Jesus is going to talk about these commands, he's going to talk and he's going to do two things. First, Jesus is going to criticize the common interpretation of the law that his audience would be familiar with. 
Now remember, Jesus is speaking to Jewish people who regularly went to the synagogue and heard the law taught by the scribes and the Pharisees, the people that the common Jewish folks generally regarded as the holiest religious scholars. But Jesus says the Pharisees and scribes are not ultra-holy. In fact, in Matthew 5.20, he says they utterly fail to meet God's standard of righteousness to the extent that there is no way they're going to enter the kingdom. In fact, we're going to see in the rest of chapter 5 that the scribal and pharisaical interpretation of the old law is inadequate. It is incorrect. Because in their zeal to observe the letter of the law, the Pharisees and scribes missed its intent, its, its true spirit. And so in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus is going to critique the biblical interpretation of the Pharisees and the scribes. But second, what Jesus is going to do in the rest of chapter 5 is he's going to show where the law truly points. And as he does, he's going to issue new commands. Commands which are for his disciples and commands which remain in effect throughout the whole church age. And so as we go through the next sermons, we're going to encounter some really practical material. And that this is material we all need to pay attention to because these are commands that are for us if we are believers. Now today in Matthew 5, 21 to 26, we're going to see the first example of Jesus taking an Old Testament law, critiquing its popular interpretation, and issuing new ethical commands. And we're going to see today three points. First, we're going to see that Jesus quotes and summarizes the prohibition on murder from the Old Testament. Second, we're going to see that Jesus surprisingly applies the prohibition on murder in a totally different and much more demanding way upon his disciples. And last, we're going to see that Jesus gives two surprising examples that tell us both how serious he is about this instruction and that also point us to some practical applications. So let's start with our first point, in which we see that Jesus quotes and summarizes the prohibition on murder from the Old Testament. Now, when you think about the Old Testament law, what's the most famous part of the Old Testament law? The Ten Commandments, right? And I think probably the most famous command of this most famous section is the one we find Jesus quoting in Matthew 5.21. If you've got a Bible, turn there and we read Jesus saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Now, many of us know this sixth commandment found in Exodus 20.13 in its King James rendering, which says, Thou shalt not kill. But the Hebrew verb here speaks only of wrongful killing. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Israelites are in fact permitted and occasionally commanded to kill. They're commanded to go to war with the Canaanites. They're given a limited right to kill in self-defense. And the Israelites were also commanded to kill people who were under the sentence of capital punishment. And so we must understand the Sixth Commandment as not forbidding all killing generally, but forbidding wrongful criminal killing. It's about murder. And murder is absolutely forbidden. Now I've got to point out that even though murder is forbidden at this early point in the law of Moses, this was not the first time that God had said murder was wrong. It's not like murder was okay until Mount Sinai, no. Way back with Cain, remember? God warned Cain when he became envious. Sin is crouching at the door. And that sin was actualized when Cain murdered Abel. And God said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed. Moreover, in Genesis 9, which we're going to talk about more in, in a minute, God told Noah, murder is a grievous offense. Murder has always been wrong. And you frankly don't need a verbal revelation from God to know that. The moral wickedness of murder is something that nature itself testifies to, which is why every nation on earth today and the vast majority of societies across human history have criminalized murder, no matter what their religious backgrounds were. Nearly everybody intuitively knows that murder is wrong. But God reiterated his prohibition on murder by putting it among the Ten Commandments. Because this was to be a foundational truth for the Israelites. That human life is to be respected. That however you relate to someone else, murder is always off the table. Because except under very limited circumstances, you have no right to take someone else's life. And if you do, it is a grievous offense. And it's with this truth that Jesus begins the passage. But quoting the sixth commandment is not all that Jesus does in verse 21. He says something else. 
He says, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, this is not so much a quote from the Old Testament as it is a summary of a number of passages from the Old Testament that specify the penalty for murder, a penalty that predates the law. When Noah got off the ark after the flood, God spoke to Noah and his sons because human society had to begin again. And in this new beginning, God said in Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Human life is sacred because we are made in God's image. Even after the fall, the image of God persists. It has been marred, but it is still there. It's not erased. And because of this, God told Noah, here's a central tenet for life in the new world. If you kill someone, you're going to be killed. And this is basically the creation of the institution of human government, this law. And this same penalty was codified in the law of Moses. The law says if someone committed murder, not if you killed someone accidentally, but intentionally. Numbers 3530 says if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, plural. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. This command was so foundational, it was so essential, that if the identity of a murderer could be established before a judge with multiple witnesses, the death penalty was mandatory. There's no discretion, no way to buy your way out of it. Indeed, as Jesus says, under the law of Moses, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, the judgment of a court imposing a death penalty. That's what the law said. Now, how was this interpreted by the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, from the sources that we have, which are pretty good, we know they interpreted this command pretty rigidly. Their students wrote documents that say things like, Israelites should not be murderers. It's pretty obvious. They say, Israelites should not associate with murderers or else they're guilty by association. But it seems that was about the extent of their interpretation of this command. Murder and perhaps other forms of violence are out of bounds. And that was the state of the prohibition against murder when Jesus appeared on the scene. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The old law no longer stands with binding legal force. Now, does this mean now that murder is permissible? Of course not, because the New Testament says a lot about murder. Jesus, in John 8, 44, says Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Murder is satanic. Later in this book, chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and a number of other sins. 1 John 3, 12, we read, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Christ and his apostles clearly tell us that murder is outrageous sin under the new covenant. More than that, murder still warrants a terrible penalty. Paul wrote in Romans 13, 4, that the government is God's servant for your good, who does not bear the sword in vain. It is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This idea that the state carries a sword speaks of capital punishment. And it suggests that God still intends for governments to fulfill the role they were given back in Genesis 9, to avenge wrongdoing, to avenge murder. Moreover, the New Testament tells us that murder does not only merit a temporary or a temporal death sentence. On the very last page of the Bible, Jesus warns that outside of the New Jerusalem, in the lake of fire, Revelation 22:15, are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers. Murder deserves eternal condemnation because it involves the destruction of someone who's made in the image of God and because of the terrible impact that it leaves on the family of the victim. And I know a little bit about this impact because 13 and a half years ago, a relative who I was very close to was murdered. My grandparents lost a son. My father lost his brother. I lost an uncle that I loved. And unfortunately, after this murder ha occurred, Nothing happened. Some people were arrested for a while, but they were released. Nobody was ever brought to court or convicted or sentenced. And after the people got released who had been arrested, there was no effort that we could tell to pick the case up and, and pursue it anymore. Nobody seemed to care. And this murder remains a grievous thing to my family. 
And our experience is not unique. Many families are touched by murder in our society today. Maybe you have been impacted horrendously by the murder of someone that you knew or cared about. Murder is a real problem in our society. In fact, statistics suggest that over the last year, murder is up about 25% in this country. And statistics show that about one in three American murders remains unsolved. So very, very many killers will not face any form of temporal justice at the hands of the state. But beyond this, many other murders are not even counted in these statistics because these murders have been proclaimed as legal by edict of the Supreme Court. And these uncounted murders are, of course, the murders which are euphemistically called abortions. With all this killing and this apparent lack of justice related to killing in our society, it's easy to imagine that nobody cares much about murder. Nobody cares about the victims or the bereaved. But friends, God cares. And unless the killers cast themselves upon the mercy of God, God will mete out his mighty justice because murder is a horrendous sin. But what we must see today, all of that notwithstanding about murder, is that after Jesus quoted the command about murder, Jesus did not simply say, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder, and I agree with that. Now, obviously, Jesus and the apostles did agree with that. But what is fascinating and important for us to see today is what Jesus does with the murder command, which is what we see as we come now to our second point, in which Jesus takes these commands and does something quite surprising and more demanding with them. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, but I say to you. Now, wait there. Look back at verse 21, at the way he introduced the sixth commandment. You have heard that it was said to those of old. But now in verse 22, but I say to you. There's a massive contrast there with two huge implications. Number one, notice who it is that does the speaking in these two verses. In verse 21, who is it that spoke the sixth command to those of old? It was God, right? But in verse 22, who does the speaking? It's Jesus now, that is an amazing claim of authority. Think about it. If I got up here today and I said, you have heard that God said X, but I tell you why. That's an audacious claim, isn't it? That's a blasphemous claim if it's on the lips of anybody other than Jesus. Jesus actually then doubles down on his claim of authority because the pronoun I here is emphatic. He says, me, Jesus, I, I'm the guy telling you this. It's an amazing statement. He boldly claims the prerogatives of God. It's a strong implied claim of deity by Jesus here. And this would have been astonishing to hear, and we know that, because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, we're told that the audience were astonished by Jesus' authoritative teaching. But the second thing I want you to see here is the way Jesus describes the recipients of these commands. Who received the sixth command? Those of old, the wilderness generation at Sinai. But this new command, who does Jesus say it's given to? I say to you, to the disciples. What is the significance of this? Ancient Israel received the sixth command at Sinai. that belongs to the old era. But now a new era has begun as the disciples receive new instruction from Jesus who is on a mountain. And to be sure, what they are receiving is in some way related to the old law. That's why Jesus quoted the old law. But they're not simply receiving clarification about what the old law means. Yes, Jesus is explaining the true heart of God concerning the murder commandment. But Jesus here is not just explaining the old covenant. Jesus is legislating the ethical provisions of the new covenant. He is giving new instruction. What is this instruction? Look at verse 22. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, some of the older translations add the words without cause here when it says, when he says, anger, or who is angry. Some of the, some, like the King James says, angry without cause. But the manuscript evidence indicates without cause was not originally a part of the text of the Gospel of Matthew. Now here Jesus simply says, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Well, back in verse 21, what did it mean to be liable to judgment? 
meant being taken into the court and given the death penalty. Everyone who is angry with his brother gets that. Whoa. That is an escalation, is it not? Far from the people who say the Old Testament law is concluded, I can live however I want. What we find in this section is Jesus says, the Old Testament law has concluded. Let me now give you the New Covenant instruction. And the New Covenant instruction is a lot harder to keep than the Old Covenant instruction was. Now, I want to examine what Jesus says here very closely by asking two questions. Number one, what does Jesus mean by brother? And two, what does Jesus mean by anger? Let's start with the first question. What does Jesus mean by brother? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces a whole new way of people relating to God. In the Old Testament, God was called Father very infrequently. But beginning in Matthew 5.16, Jesus tells his followers, this is how we should think about God, as our Father. And Paul tells us in Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1 that believers in Christ have been adopted into God's family. And so we believers are brothers and sisters. And that's how we should understand it when Jesus talks about brothers in this passage. He's talking about people who claim to be his disciples. So he says, if one person who claims to be my disciple gets angry with another person who claims to be my disciple, this is a crime that merits the death sentence. Now you might say, well, Jesus, that sounds like an overreaction. But before we talk about that, let's examine what Jesus means by anger. What's anger? You know it when you feel it, right? Uh, the dictionary says anger is an emotion of hostility. But in Greek, there are, there are two words which are usually translated as anger. Uh, there's thumos and orge. Both of these terms are used throughout the New Testament to express strong, passionate anger. Both of these terms are used throughout the New Testament to describe the wrath of God upon sinners for their sin. And both of these terms are used throughout the New Testament to describe the anger of people towards one another. So what is the distinction between thumos and orge? Well, thumos is like the initial jolt of anger. But orge is like a seething rage of long duration. It's often used to describe an anger that demands satisfaction or revenge. And in Matthew's Gospel, orge is always used to describe anger that comes before a violent act of destruction. Now, here in verse 22, when we find Jesus talking about anger, he's using the verbal form of the word orge. And so Jesus is specifically talking here about vengeful anger, the anger that seethes for a long time and which often leads to destruction. And Jesus says, for someone who claims to be a believer, to have this kind of anger against a brother or sister in the faith deserves death. Now, when we hear this, We've got to be very careful because anger is a universal experience and because we live in an angry society. And so it is easy for us to want to water down or immediately rebel against the idea that anger is a sin that deserves death. When we hear this, we probably start immediately thinking about rationalizations for our anger. What about righteous anger, we say? Well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But before we start trying to justify our anger, let us sit for a minute in what Jesus says here. Because this is contrary to our culture and our experience, which tells us anger is normal and good. We need to hear what Jesus is saying and let it examine us and make us uncomfortable. Anger towards a brother is a sin that deserves death. Now, maybe instead of running immediately to righteous anger, you started trying to rationalize your anger already along a different line. Maybe you thought, well, Ben, you said there's two types of, of anger. There's orge and thumos. Well, orge is a sin. Maybe thumos isn't. Maybe my anger is thumos. And that means it's not a sin. Well, bad news. Galatians 5.19 says the works of the flesh are evident. And one of those works is fits of anger, which is a translation of thumos. Colossians 3.8 says, now you must put them all away, anger, orge, wrath, thumos. Both orge and thumos are listed as sinful expressions of the flesh throughout the New Testament. It just so happens that the type of anger Jesus specifies in our passage is orge, but the general tenor of the New Testament is that both types of anger are sinful. But why? Especially given the fact that God himself has both orge and thumos according to the New Testament. If God can have these kinds of anger, why can't we? Ephesians 5 tells us, after all, that we're to imitate God. 
Well, even though we are to emulate God's moral attributes, there are some things that we cannot and must not try to emulate God in. And one of those things we find in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Only God has the right of wrath and revenge. That is never for us. In our world, God has instituted the government to carry out expressions of temporal wrath. We are never to take that upon ourselves. And eternally, God himself will execute eternal wrath. But friends, we have no right of vengeance. And yet, when we harbor anger, that's basically what we're craving, right? At least sinful anger. We get angry because we perceive that there's some sort of a wrong out there. And it's usually because we've been personally offended. And we conclude that whoever has wronged us in this way must be some kind of terrible evildoer. And the Bible says evildoers should die. And so when we harbor this kind of anger, what we are basically saying is, I judge this person as deserving death. And the longer you hold on to that, and the, the longer you want to see this person die, the more bitter and hateful you become. See, that's why Jesus connects anger to the murder command. Because it is this heart posture of determining that someone else should die, which invariably stands behind the act of murder. And this same heart posture, this same sort of seething anger, is something that we all experience in life. Some people who experience it act violently. Some don't. Most don't. But what Jesus says here, contrary to what the Pharisees and scribes said, is that the murder command is not simply about the act of killing. The murder command points to a deeper truth, that the anger which is the root of murder is itself evil. And all those who have this anger stand guilty whether we act on it or not. That's why 1 John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Because apart from our actions, it is the heart posture of the person who murders and the heart posture of the person who simply hates without murdering. Those two heart postures are indistinguishable. And that tells us that that very heart attitude is itself wicked. And as a result, this evil heart posture becomes meritorious of the punishment that fits the crime of murder. I think I've got to be very careful here. Because it's possible to reason very incorrectly from what Jesus is saying. We might think that Jesus is saying, being angry is in every respect the same as actually doing murder. And we may reason, well, if I'm sinfully angry at someone, God has already charged me with that person's murder. So I might as well go ahead and kill them anyway, since I'm already guilty of it. You guys laugh at that, but when we talk about adultery next week, I've got to tell you, I, I know people have reasoned just like that. It shows we have to think very carefully about what Jesus is saying here. God obviously knows that there is a profound difference between evil thinking and evil outward conduct. Actually killing someone is much worse than just harboring sinful anger against them. Because when you kill, you're actually depriving someone of life. You're actually depriving that person's relatives of this person. You commit a lot worse impacts when you actually kill. The point here is not that there is an absolute moral equivalence between the thought of hateful anger and the act of murder. The point is that the thought of hateful anger is a lot more wicked than we think. Because this evil thought is the same thought that stands behind the commission of murder. And for that reason, the thought generates much more severe liability than we think. It merits the liability that goes with the crime that our heart desires. And so Jesus says, if we harbor sinful anger against a brother, we deserve to die. But it's not all. Keep reading in verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, your translation may read a little bit differently here. Your Bible may say, whoever says hereka to his brother, haraka. It's a little bit more literal than the ESV. What's it mean? Hereka uh, seems to have been an Aramaic curse that means something like fool or idiot. And so Jesus says, number one, sinful anger deserves being dragged into court for judgment. And number two, if your sinful anger erupts into verbal abuse, you are liable to face the judgment of a higher court. Literally here, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. What Jesus is saying here is verbal abuse is a really big deal. It's so scandalous, it deserves the biggest trial imaginable and the sentence of death. But 
How is somebody going to be put on trial for being angry or muttering a curse in their car when they get cut off? How clogged would that make the legal system? How could the case be proved? Well, let's keep reading and we'll see what Jesus is really driving at here. Verse 22, he says, And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, Jesus isn't really talking about a human court. He's speaking about the court of heaven, the justice of God. And friends, God doesn't need witnesses to establish our crimes because God knows what we mutter in the car when we see bad driving or what we whisper under our breath when someone makes us angry or what we scream when someone irritates us. God knows all perfectly and exhaustively. And God takes our vengeful rage and our arrogant insults and our contempt of other people deadly seriously. Now here he says, a person's anger leads them not to say hreka or you fool, or not, not to say hreka, that curse meaning idiot, but to say you fool. Now in Greek this is the word moros, which is where we get the word moron. But in context this means a lot more than just calling someone stupid. Because throughout Matthew, moros is used as a synonym for godlessness. So this isn't just calling somebody dumb. This is calling somebody evil or unregenerate. This is a, somebody who claims to be a believer looking at another believer saying, I don't think you're really saved, and I'm going to tell you, you are unregenerate. And Jesus says, whoever does that deserves the hell of fire. This is the first time Jesus speaks about hell in this book. It won't be the last. Jesus has a lot to say about hell in Matthew and in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus speaks of hell here, he uses the word Gehenna which is a composition of two Hebrew words. Gay, which means valley, and hinnom, which is a name. And this should sound familiar to you if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Because the valley of the sons of Hinnom was a geographical place just southwest of Jerusalem. And it's an infamous place in the Bible. According to 2 Kings 16 and 21, it was the valley of the sons of Hinnom in that location that wicked Israelites went to sacrifice their children to the demonic idol Moloch. But when good King Josiah came to the throne, he desecrated this valley so that these abominations would end. And in time, this desecrated place became the place that Israelites turned into a giant bonfire, which was continually fed with garbage and with the bodies of criminals. It became the city dump. And this became the way that people started to talk about hell in first century Judaism. This is the way Jesus talks about hell, of the final destiny of the lost. It's an ever-burning dump. This is a really somber and sorrowful image. And friends, you need to know today that hell is real, that it lasts forever, that people that you and I know are going there. And one reason that people go to hell forever is because they harbored sinful anger. This is the penalty that sinful anger merits, or that sinfully angry speech and cursing and insulting people truly merits. But wait, you might say. Yes, the Bible says anger is generally sinful. And yes, Jesus here connects sinful anger to murder. And yes, Jesus says that sinful anger deserves death and hell. But do we not find examples of righteous anger in the Bible where anger is justified? Some people who write about anger, I would tell you, claim that anger is never justified. Only God can be right angry. Yet when I read the Bible, that's not what I see. In John 2, when Jesus goes to the temple. He sees it has become a place of buying and selling and fraud rather than worship. And we're told Jesus made a whip of cords. He drove these people out of the temple. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was consumed by a holy zeal to purify the temple of his father. And so he made a whip and he beat people with it. And he threw the tables over. He is clearly angry. And this is Jesus, who the Bible tells us repeatedly is without sin. So yes, here is an example of righteous anger. But the people who say there is no righteous anger will come back and say, well, but that's Jesus, and Jesus is God, and so that's not an example for us. But I disagree with that. Certainly in his deity, Jesus has the unique 
right to exercise holy wrath and vengeance, a right that mere mortals cannot have. But in his humanity, is Jesus not the supreme example of holiness and righteousness for believers? Are we not being made more like Jesus as we're sanctified in this life? And so should our affections and our zeal not more closely resemble his the more that we grow in our faith? Jesus' anger is a legitimate example of righteous anger. There are other examples. Consider Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah goes down the street. He sees Israelites acting outrageously. And we read, verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Does that sound angry to you? Yet there's no sense that what he did was wrong. In fact, the way the book of Nehemiah ends seems to suggest this was quite righteous. Or consider Paul, who wrote, Oh, foolish Galatians! Now, he doesn't use the word moros, but he uses something pretty similar to it. Paul said of the heretics in Galatia that preached circumcision, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I don't think you could write that without some anger. Galatians 2.4, Paul speaks of people as being false brothers in the Scripture. Saying someone is a false brother isn't always wrong. It's only wrong when it's untrue. So yes, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 some very important and serious and true things about anger, but we also learn from Jesus' example and other biblical examples that there is a time and a place for anger and maybe even strong words or for questioning someone's spiritual condition. But when is anger righteous and justified and when is anger hateful and sinful? Again, I think we can learn a lot from the example of Jesus. In the temple... Jesus got angry because God's honor was impugned, because sin was glorified, and because the people of God were defrauded and harmed. Jesus' anger was righteous outrage about the objective awfulness of sin and injustice and blasphemy. That is righteous anger. Contrast this now with how Jesus responded to the ordeal on the cross. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus suffered injustice personally, when he suffered personal attacks, he didn't lash out with threats of vengeance or words of anger. In fact, some of his last words were a prayer for forgiveness for his tormentors. Jesus trusted this whole situation to the Father and let the Father avenge it. So what do we learn from all of this? Sin and injustice and blasphemy are occasions for righteous anger, but personal offenses and personal suffering and personal frustrations are not occasions for righteous anger. These are things that we need to turn over to God. Now that may seem to be a relatively straightforward line of delineation, but the problem is when we filter this through the sin of our own heart, we often rationalize personal slights and insults as a justification for a massive crusade that we call righteous anger. When in fact we're not really mad about the honor of God or the awfulness of sin, we're just mad that someone is mean to us. So how do I know the difference between this? Here's a great test. You're really mad in the depth of your soul. What do you want to see? You want to see them repent or do you want to see them destroyed? I'll tell you the tale all the time. The truth is, friends, we generally, the vast majority of anger and the vast majority of all that is rationalized as righteous anger is something that we are lying to ourselves about. Most of our anger is unrighteous. Anger that does not entrust the situation to him who judges justly, but which instead usurps the seat of God that seats us on a throne, pronouncing that someone else must die and that makes us want to be the executioner. And where we have tolerated that in our lives, we need to repent of it and forsake it. Be warned. James 1 says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And when we have anger in our lives because of what someone else has done, the scripture is clear about what we should do about that. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, you and him alone. Go and address it. To what end? Well, Jesus says, so that you gain your brother. And if that doesn't solve things, then continue to follow Matthew 18. Take witnesses and so forth. But Christian friend, wrongs are not to be privately nursed until the end of time. When you have something against someone, we need to deal with this promptly so that we can quickly be reconciled to our brothers and sisters whom sin has separated from us. 
Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There are sometimes legitimate reasons to be angry, either because we have righteous anger or because we really were personally offended by someone. And when we have something against someone, we need to address it. And we need to address it quickly because it doesn't take much for what had been truly righteous anger to degenerate into sinful and vengeful hatred, which would make Satan very happy to see in your life. The best way to head this off is to go immediately to someone who has wronged you or embittered you. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The Greek word translated anger there means the reason for your anger. Deal with this promptly before you let it embitter you. Before you speak evil words out of hatefulness. Go quickly. And this is exactly what Jesus is driving at in his third point. In which we see Jesus gives us two surprising examples that point us to the seriousness with which Jesus takes this issue and that point us to some practical conclusions. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, So... And everything that follows is a consequence of what he's just said. The sinful anger and hateful words deserve hell. So, verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. He says, if you, now not you sitting here at RBF today, but his original audience of Galilean Jews, he says, let's say you Galilean Jews go down to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, to the temple, to offer a sacrifice. This wouldn't happen all the time. It was 80 miles between Galilee and Jerusalem, a four-day walk. For most Galilean Jews, this would be a one-time-a-year thing. Jesus says, let's say you're doing that, and you're at the temple, and you're in the long line with your animal, and you wait your turn, and eventually you get up to the altar, and you hand the the animal to the priest, and the priest raises his knife, and just then you remember, my brother's got something against me, something legitimate. Now, I need to stress that because we live in an age in which people say, well, I feel offended, and then somehow you're supposed to have actually done something wrong when you haven't. Okay, that's not biblical. The Bible tells us people often get offended when we do things right, like preach the gospel or confront their sin. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He says, let's say, in this moment, when the priest raises up the knife, you remember you have sinned against a fellow believer, and you haven't said it right. That's the scenario. Now, I think this is a surprising example. Because at first we may not see the connection between this example and verse 22. In verse 22, the situation is, Jesus is warning against me being angry at someone else. But now in verse 23, the example involves someone else being angry at me. Say, what's the relationship here? Well, if we recognize that sinful anger is really dangerous for us, and we recognize that it's something we need to resist and give no room to in our lives, then we should be extremely concerned when we have given a fellow believer cause to feel those sorts of things towards us. And out of love, we should act to help them resolve their grievances. So in this situation, what should the Galilean Jew do? Should he say, well... God understands. It's a long walk back home to make this right, and I'll fix it when I can. No. Jesus says, stop the solemn rite of sacrifice at the altar. Leave your animal there. Walk days back home. Fix things up with your brother. And then go back to Jerusalem and stand in that long line and then offer your sacrifice. You might think, well, man, that sounds awfully inconvenient. That's not very pragmatic. It isn't. But very few things in the Christian life are pragmatic. God isn't interested in practicality. He's interested in holiness. And to come before God at a solemn time of worship that speaks of our vertical repentance towards Him, and then to realize you have unaddressed horizontal failures of repentance. Somebody's got legitimate claims on you. And then to say, well, God, I'm indifferent to that. All of that shows you're not really right with God because you're indifferent to sin in your life. God cares about the sin that your brother has against you every bit as much as he cares about the sin that you've committed against only him. And he wants us to deal with all of our sin and to deal with it promptly before we gather for public worship. Now, before I talk about the practical implications of this, let me prove that the thing your brother has against you must be legitimate. 
Think about Jesus. Did people have stuff against Jesus? Jesus had a lot of enemies, right? In chapter 12, we're going to see some of them say Jesus is empowered by Satan. Chapter 26, some of them are going to say Jesus is a blasphemer. People had things against Jesus. Did that mean Jesus could not go to worship because he knew his enemies had grievances with him? No, because their grievances were false. Think about Paul. Did people have things against Paul? Sure. False teachers maligned Paul all the time. Was Paul unable to worship God in good conscience because there were heretics and apostates who laid false charges against him? No, because their charges were false. So the issue here is not that someone has a complaint against you that is false. The issue is someone has a legitimate grievance with you. And friends, in that case, you and I need to address it. Now maybe you say, well, they think I've sinned and I really don't think I've sinned and I don't care to think about it. No, 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 no. We owe it to them to hear it out. James 1 says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. And if they convince you from the scriptures that you have sinned, then do whatever is necessary to reconcile with that brother or sister promptly. But if you are not convinced from the scriptures that you have sinned, do not act like their grievance is true. That would be to lie. Deal with real issues where you have wronged someone promptly and don't participate in false reconciliation where there is no sin. All right. Well, we're not Galilean Jews from 2,000 years ago. What would this look like for us? Imagine that you're driving to church, you pull into the parking lot, and you realize somebody's got a problem with you. Or you're going to sing worship songs in a minute, and you realize you've sinned against somebody and you haven't dealt with it. Or when we take communion, remember that time when we paused beforehand for self-examination? If then you remember somebody's got something against you, what should you do? What you should do is stop what you're doing and get up and go address that issue before you continue to worship. Is that awkward? Is that inconvenient? Is that embarrassing? Yes. Just like leaving your sacrifice and trekking back to Galilee would be awkward and inconvenient and embarrassing. But guess what? Jesus says, who cares? Do it anyway. Because it's more important to approach God the right way in worship without this hanging over you than to worry about what other people think of you. In fact, Jesus says, you should have this same attitude if you have wronged anybody, whether they are a brother in the Lord or not. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now here the picture is two people have a legal dispute. The person who is in the wrong is a believer. And the wronged party may or may not be a believer. We're not told. What we're told is they are the accuser. And this is a technical term referring to a plaintiff, someone seeking relief in a legal action. And so the wronged party has decided to take the Christian to court for a legitimate cause. The believer here is truly in the wrong. What does Jesus say the believer should do? He says, come to terms, resolve the dispute, settle out of court, and do it quickly. The longer you wait, Jesus says, the worse this situation will be for you. In the world of Jesus' hypothetical example, you go, if you wait until you actually are in front of the judge, your accuser will win because his grievance is legitimate. The judge will impose a serious penalty, which will result in your imprisonment, either because it's a criminal case or because you are assessed such large civil damages you can't pay them, which in that ancient day meant you would be thrown into debtor's prison. In the world of the hypothetical, this is a really bad outcome. And it gets worse. In verse 26, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Friends, if you fail to deal with situations of anger, if I fail to deal with situations of anger, in which we've wronged someone else, and we don't deal with it promptly, we are going to suffer. Our consciences are going to scream at us. We're not going to have any peace. And that's before God deals with us. Friends, it's better to swallow your pride and set things right with your accuser today than to wait until the last day and face God with this hanging over your head. So let me conclude like this. Number one, if you have been nursing sinful anger and bitterness, repent. Forsake your anger. Recognize that what you are nursing in your life merits hell because you have a murderous intent in your heart and flee from that. 
Second, where situations that cause anger arise, deal with them quickly. If you are the party who has suffered wrong, Matthew 18 says, go deal with it. If you are the party who has committed wrong, Matthew 5 says, go deal with it. If the wrong is substantial and it's righteous anger material, we need to deal with it. If it's petty or personal, turn it over to God, but still talk to the brother or sister who's wronged you. Deal with it. And deal with it quickly. Before it grows into a poisonous, terrible root of bitterness that dominates our thinking, that corrupts our lives, that destroys our testimony, and that condemns us before God. Now, it may be that when we try to deal with it, we discover the other party is not willing to reconcile with us. Or they say, well, I'll reconcile with you, and what they demand is something obscene or sinful. It may be that they block reconciliation from happening. If that happens, you must simply turn the situation over to God and walk away. Do not compound a bad situation by further sinning to win a false peace. The last I want to say to you today, watch your tongue, friends. If you give outward vent to your rage, you compound the sin of unjust anger. And believing, friends, we are not to be the people who curse or insult others. I've seen so much of this online. I think half the Christian websites out there have comment pages just to show the pastors who needs to be put under church discipline. Okay, there is so much insulting happening in the Christian world and so much delight taking place about offensive language and just ridiculous stuff. James 3 says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things are not to be so. And you can say, yes, 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 but you don't know how evil they are, the people who I disagree with. Friends, it doesn't matter. We need to learn that by the power of the Spirit, we can choose to think before we speak or type. We can choose to not speak when our emotions are running riot with us. Sinful anger is a universal problem. Believers are not exempt from it. It's a major problem. It's a terrible sin that falls short of God's demand. Matthew 5 says you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And friends, we've all failed in this area. But you know who hasn't failed is Christ. And when we stand before the Father, we stand in the righteousness of Christ. And as we live before the Father, and the Spirit is in us, He makes us more like Jesus, and He cultivates greater righteousness in our lives, conforming us to Christ's mind and Christ's will. And so may we guard our hearts against sinful anger. May we deal with the sinful anger we are nursing. May we turn things over to God and try our best to reconcile with people on earth. And lastly... May we rejoice, because even though this is an area in which we've all failed miserably, God's grace is greater than our sin. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, and the Spirit of Christ will give us victory over this, and one day He will give us victory over all sin. Let's pray.